liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe God willing, Alex will get well. His people have already told me that he is thrilled to be coming on the show and that he intends to do so in the next couple of days as soon as he feels better. So I'm guessing probably around Wednesday of this week, and uh, I can't wait. If you can't tell, I am extraordinarily excited. So in the meantime, I decided to bring you an episode with two of my good friends now, Mr. Reed Coverdale of Naturalist Capitalist. He is banned from everywhere, but uh, you know that always makes for a good conversation. And then we also got Dan Sanchez of FEE. It's the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, I'm going to give you both of these back-to-back, so you can devour them and and wait for the Alex Jones episode. Uh, I feel like this will be a a good tie-over. If you would like to support the show, go to SideShaper.com and enter the code LIBERTY. It's a coupon code which gets you $50 off your order. It has a swiveling ab machine. I have one of them. Kicks your ass. Thing is really badass. If you have been uh, taken out (laughs) via lockdowns and your body has fallen to shit, this is a good option for you. They're uh, owned by a liberty-minded guy. This is a liberty-minded show. You're a liberty-minded person. Hey, put them all together. Use the code, coupon code LIBERTY at checkout. Get 50, bu- 50 bucks off. Go to sideshaper.com. They will have a video on the website so you can see exactly what I'm describing. This thing is badass. It doesn't cost a ton of money. Gets you a, a similar caliber, if not a better caliber workout. Definitely a better caliber workout than at my gym uh, for your abs. Go to sideshaper.com. Coupon code LIBERTY for 50 bucks off. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome, everybody, to a non-live stream edition of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. You are tuning into the very first episode post my Alex Jones interview, but it is being recorded just prior, and I today will have on my longtime lover, the host of The Naturalist Capitalist, Mr. Reed Coverdale. Welcome in, sir. Thanks for having me after, well, you know, before Alex Jones, but after Alex Jones. So following Alex Jones is, uh, it, you know, it's a big, uh, big shoes to fill. I'll see what I can do. Dude, huge shoes to fill. That <laughs> I can't even believe it's happening. The fact that I didn't even inquire, the fact that like his people reached out to me is, I, you know, I was kind of joking when I said uh, on Twitter yesterday, you ever, you ever have a, an email that made you faint, but Getting that email was like as close to me just passing out as I've ever gotten in my life. I was like, fuck yes, I want Alex Jones on my show. Are you kidding me? My God. Well, I remember at Freedom Fest last year when we were asking each other, what's your like biggest guest you could ever dream of having? You told me Alex Jones. So here you are, man. I know, dude. Crazy. Crazy. And (laughs) and and it just happened to be that, you know, tomorrow is episode two hundred. So uh I I, I, it's what's really wild. My friend, uh, my friends from San Diego, Liz and Elise, they, uh, when I had first started the show around like episode, I don't know, 50 or 60 is when I first had Dave on. And they said, you're going to have Alex Jones on by episode 200. I swear to God, they said that. <laughs> and, and I was like, never going to happen. Not a chance. You know, that's like a three, four year plan. Definitely not. 
year two plan. And uh, sure enough, it's going to happen. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. What what do you think uh, I should discuss with Alex? I'm I'm still open to it. Oh man, well. I know what I would discuss with him, but it's like a completely different. Um, well, what, what would you discuss with him? Well, I don't actually like Alex Jones. Like I, I find him entertaining, um, and I, you know, I, I don't hate him. I, I can't imagine like expending effort into hating Alex Jones. It's just such a right. waste of time. There's plenty do... of people already handling that, anyways. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And I've got good friends who absolutely despise him, but. Um, I think he has been instrumental in discrediting a whole swath of true conspiracies that are, you know, that, that should be looked into more. But he has, you know, he, he's sensationalized them to such an exit uh, to, su to such an extent that no one even wants to bother looking into them anymore. So like with 9-11, for an example, you know, like so many people don't want to hear anything about 9-11 truth. Because to them, it's just nothing but, you know, non-existent airplanes or right. uh, controlled demolitions or whatever. And they don't want to look into any of the anomalies that I find very interesting. Um, and I think that's just become part of his thing now. Like, if he attaches himself to any conspiracy theory or any question, it instantly repels, you know, tons of people. And so I would want to ask him, like, if he regrets that at all or if he thinks that's true or you know, um, what his reaction to that would be, because that, that's like my biggest takeaway from him. Um, but I don't know. It, what do you think? You're more of a fan than I am, I, I would say. Yeah, no, I definitely am. Um, I mean, I think that there's certainly credence to that argument that that he has undermined some of the, uh, the genuine inquiry into some of these topics. But, um, you know, I think from a normie perspective, he's done a lot of good in in getting people to question corporate narratives and and moreover governmental narratives about you know really nefarious actions by our governments um so you know i in my estimation i think he's been a net positive because he has brought so many people into the red-pilled mindset um but it's just like with QAnon, like do you go too far to the point that it becomes uh, a net negative I, I personally don't think that he's a net negative, but I do think that there are many people in the conspiracy theorist realm um, that are, and, mm -hmm. and I understand why some people feel that way about Alex. I, I really think, though, that, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with counter-narratives and you're being told by the government that everything's a lie, um, you're, going to, you're going to get some things not just wrong, but dramatically so. And if you're talking for, you know, two or three hours every single day for for decades, like I think he's done, uh, I think it, he's held to a standard that's kind of impossible. That's that's mm. kind of my my perspective on it. Is that yeah, fair or no? I, well, I think that he fills a desired <laughs> role of the establishment, actually, in, in many ways, because mm. I think there's like an intentional... Uh, narrative that the government and the media puts out there like the official narrative that you're supposed to follow and then there's also like an intentional counter narrative that they want people to follow if they're not going to follow the official narrative so then you end up having like two narratives that aren't anywhere near the truth that distract everyone from ever even being interested from looking into what's true because then if you're someone who says like look this is what actually happened 
the people who have gone kind of down the kook route, they don't want to even hear from you because to them, you're just a establishment sellout who's not willing to like look into the truth of the situation. And then the people who are following the official narrative, they put you in the same category, uh, same category as the, as like the, the kooky truthers. So like we saw this with, with COVID and the vaccines, right? I think we can talk about this now. Like the um, idea that there was no flu, that it was like, you know, there was no virus at all. And it's all crisis actors, uh, there were people who literally thought that who were just like straight up denying that you could die from it at all or that it even oh, yeah. existed. But then if you were someone who's saying, hey, you know, I'm a young guy and I don't really need to get this vaccine and the vaccine actually doesn't stop the spread. You were instantly put in the same camp as the kooks. And then to some of the kooks, if you told them like, look, no, you, if you're an older person, and you get this, it can screw you up and you can die from it you're instantly, you know, covering for the establishment to them. So I, I I feel like this may be more intentional than a mistake. And I don't think Alex Jones is like a, a government agent or anything like that. I think he just unwittingly kind of fills that role for them that they're looking for. That's just my criticism of him. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I, I, it's kind of, um, it's unfortunate since I haven't ever met the guy, so I can't really get a feel for, his character, I kind of have to judge through uh, Joe Rogan's opinion of him because he is good friends with him. And and right. Joe has al always stood up for him and said, this guy's a true believer. And I, I think that uh, I think that's kind of what you're saying is like he's he's sincere, but he's also wrong. <laughs> and and uh, I think he's sincere and he's more often right than he is wrong. And I think that people really uh, are overly judgmental of him for the things that he's been wrong about because as I've already explained, you know, you're dealing with um, secondary sources of information. You're like, you, you can't get directly, like he says he's got the documents, but um, I think oftentimes he doesn't have the documents. He's, he's trying to, to um, read tea leaves and, and connect dots. I do that myself. I think that's why I, I have an affinity for it is like, I'm trying to like, we know we're being lied to and I'm trying to seek truth. So am I going to get some things wrong? Absolutely. But sure. I'm still it's still in the pursuit of truth, which is something I will always respect is like if you if you're a sincere truth seeker, I'm not going to be that upset when you're wrong. I guess that that's what I'm saying. Also, if you're a sincere truth seeker, you should be 100 percent willing to have him on your show. And if you get any backlash over that, you should just disregard the naysayers like I um, I mean, I know people who block anybody who doesn't agree with them on their nuanced view of 9-11 because they're so sick of like the Jason Burmeses and the Alex Jones of the world. I do not take that position at all. Alex, if you want to come on my show after going on Clint's show, I'd love to have you on. I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> like, uh, you know me, Clint, I'm a, I'm a freedom of association absolutist. I will talk to literally anybody. Yep, and thanks. I think that, you know, if you're looking for truth, you should be willing to talk to anybody and that if you don't allow people on your platform or if you if you own a platform, I know we're going to get into this later, but if you own a platform and you're purposefully like suspending people or crushing them in the algorithms, all you're doing is reinforcing their idea that what they believe is right because they're not allowed to talk about it. So I think you're 100 yeah. percent on the right path, brother. Yeah, well, and, and also, you know, when you when you suppress ideas it's not just the platforms that, you know, it doesn't just convince you and I that we're probably on the right track. It also convinces our audience that we're probably on the right track because they're like, why don't they want me to hear this stuff? Because that's what the, 
you know, the conspiracy minded people are already uh, right. of that belief that they're that the truth is being suppressed. So if you just suppress us, then it it you know it naturally follows that well, then it's the truth, <laughs> and and exactly. sometimes it's not. And I I think that that's why you know sunlight's the best disinfectant. And I and I like to have open conversations with people of all you know political beliefs and and philosophical beliefs for that matter. It's uh it's also just a it's a much more fun way to live. You know, I like I like to hear things that are contrary to my my current belief system. I also like to be challenged. I just kind of have uh, that built into me. So I really I I absolutely love talking to people that are not libertarians, and it's it's really tragic to me that I can't get more of them to do so. You know, like they they really <laughs> like I don't know if they bought the narrative about us being you know fascist alt right adjacent or some bullshit. Um, or if they just can't hang, but I'm gonna I'm gonna lean towards the latter. I think they can't hang with us. What do you think? Yeah, I think when people are not willing to talk to someone who disagrees with them, it really just points to an intellectual weakness that they have, um, because they're afraid that their opposition might say something that makes a little bit too much sense. Right. Um, so you know that's what's ironic about these people who uh, like don't want to ever even talk to republicans or talk to right-wingers or talk to white nationalists or whatever because i when i hear that that you don't even want to talk to them that to me means like that's because you actually have some insecurity about yourself that you might agree with something these guys have to say right. you know like I, I feel like if you're truly a not racist person or whatever you have no fear of talking to people with crazy beliefs about race or uh you know crazy beliefs about you know what should be done to certain people or whatever like i have no fear of talking to those type of people because i know what i believe and i'm ready to defend it and ready to criticize them with other attacks than just how dare you that's an awful of course position yeah because you know i've actually thought about this stuff and realized why i think it's disgusting that they would think the things they do and so that's why i'm literally willing to talk to anyone just like you are and so people who you know get upset that you and i are talking to people that they don't think we should be talking to uh they can get fucked because they're <laughs> they're just useless themselves and would be unable to you know actually criticize the people they're upset that we talk to yeah i think i think what it really emphasizes is a blue-pilled perspective in that you're essentially willing to disassociate just because you've been instructed to you know right like I don't I don't ever feel that way like if I want to disassociate from someone like the Richard Spencers of the world or something like that it would be because I find their their beliefs you know reprehensible but it's because I've actually considered them not because I've been told that their beliefs are reprehensible and I think right. a lot of people are just labeling people as you know uh you can't talk to this guy uh, strictly because the the political establishment and the media has told you so and i just think that that's super weak you know like i i would i would much rather face uh uncomfortable ideas head on and ultimately i believe that our ideas will prevail in that battle so like why wouldn't i want that challenge and and also if their ideas are so dangerous why would i not want to defeat them you know right I, how how am I going to defeat them by just allowing them to fester under the surface of civilization? It, and that's that's basically what we're doing. We're we're making anybody that's like a white nationalist or even just a Republican uh, kind of persona non grata in the in the public sphere. And it, it's just 
it's just so counterproductive in my opinion. I mean, if you if you want to create some sort of dangerous white supremacist movement in this country, continue on this path. Continue to to suppress people. Continue to have hiring practices that are based off of race because you're trying to uh, you know alleviate the the ills of prior generations. Like this is all so counterproductive. And as someone who ultimately believes in like what used to be progressivism, uh, as in like treating uh, people based off of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Right. <laughs> I'm now, I'm now a, re a regressive. It's fucking bizarre. Yeah. I mean, you know, Peter Schiff is my hero uh, going to occupy wall street and talking to all those people. Speaking and... of people that get things wrong sometimes. No, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's been right about like 30 of the last two recessions. So <laughs> um... I, lo I love you, Peter. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, but yeah, he, um, you know, when he went to Occupy Wall Street and talked to all those people and just dismantled their belief system before their eyes with logic that, I mean, that, that has just been inspirational to me since I saw that back in 2014 yeah. or whatever it was. And, you know, I used to be a Christian and I used to be a neocon and I ended up being where I am now from questioning everything and being willing to talk to people who disagreed with me and ultimately realizing that they were right about things and I was wrong about things. And I still want to be that way. So if I'm wrong about economics and, you know, some communists could convince me if they are actually right, I want to know that they're right. But I also want to understand their arguments so that if they're wrong, I know how better to defeat them, like you were saying. So it's a win-win. If you're open to discussion, you will either find out that what you previously thought was wrong and you can be led to the light or you can reinforce your own arguments and understand why somebody thinks the way they do. And it'll give you a better strategy for bringing people like that over to your side in the future. So exactly. I, I think it's yeah. like exactly the right thing to do all the time. It's a, it's a net positive, no matter what, you know, how it plays out. Like good example. Um, did you get a chance to watch the combo couch yesterday? I did. Yeah, it was great, by the way. Good job. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, so for those that didn't get a chance yet, go check it out. It's over on Convo Couch on YouTube. Uh, it was myself, Pasta, uh, Dave Smith, and Jimmy Dore. And and I, I had no idea as to what direction it was going to go, really. I, I uh, But I, I was thrilled that, you know, Pasta directed it in a, in, a, in a path of both areas of agreement, but then what I really enjoyed was the areas of disagreement. And I didn't expect this, but we ended up getting into a a pretty lengthy debate about Medicare for all. And I think that Dave, as normal, obviously uh, <laughs> trounced <laughs> Jimmy on, on that, on that topic. But um, I still think that that those moments are really important because, you know, Jimmy had to, had to face the, the obvious counter arguments to Medicare for all, which is there, there's a litany of them. Um, but I, I think that what's most profound is, you know, we just came out of a pandemic where we had a, kind of a totalitarian uh, approach to to dealing with it and our medical establishment absolutely failed us. And and it's still, you have a portion of this country that I think are right about a lot of things, anti-interventionism and, uh, and, you know, not trusting big business. Like they're, they're right on a bunch of stuff, but they, they ultimately miss so severely when it comes to these, this still having faith in a government, which they openly declare is an evil ent entity. It's it's a really fascinating um, kind of a, I think it's cognitive dissonance almost. Uh, what what's your opinion as to how how they're able to overlook what seems so obvious to you and I? 
I don't know. Like, I, I think, you know, they just think that, I mean, we, we agree on the problem being corruption, but we think it comes from a different place. And I really don't understand that because they really think that business is the root of all evil. And when I hear them talk about what they think business could become, everything that they're describing is what the government already is. So the fear is that it's right. going to become a monopoly, that there's not going to be any competition anymore, that they're going to be able to force you into doing certain things <laughs> and they're going to have control over your life in some way. And it's like the government literally <laughs> is all of those things. And I thought, did you, Dave's, did you sleep through the last two and a half years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine if Pfizer and Moderna and, you know, all those companies had made all the vaccines and said, okay, guys, you're going to get these now. You, like you have four, to get them. <laughs> yeah. Four oh, years cool. ago, we would have been like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> thanks yeah. for the recommendation. But yeah. once you start and shutting or, businesses or down. Forced, or you'll be forced out of your job. I mean, uh, can you imagine if we had that kind of uh, power amongst the, the big businesses? Like, motherfucker, we have. They have that power, but it's only through the government. Damn it. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know why they have that cognitive dissonance. I mean, to me, it's so obvious, but uh, I, I guess they feel the same way about us. They don't understand how we can't see that capitalism just turns to corporatism. But it's like, yeah, but motherfucker, the, the middleman that creates corporatism out of capitalism is the government. You know, right. like, uh, so I don't get it. I mean, it's a it's an argument that has to continue, but I don't I haven't figured out like how you break through because you can describe it in the way i just did that everything you're scared of the business becoming is what the government already is and that it just it doesn't connect somehow it, it's still it's it's interesting too that it's it's the uh it's the same you know counter argumentation against anarchism like like the worst aspects of what people imagine anarchy to be is ultimately what we have now and, right. and it, it seems very similar uh similar line of reasoning i, I think know. it's just years of conditioning you know like they, I mean, because it's healthy to think that business needs regulation for the corporate state. They want you to believe that, right? They want you to believe that without government, everything would deteriorate and fall apart. So I think it's just been pushed on people forever and ever through media and education. And that's why it's just so hard to break through. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. Uh, by the way, for people that are listening, uh, I will have Adam Krigler on my show finally. He he ghosted me last week, but he reached out this morning, and we have just confirmed for uh, this Wednesday. So make sure you guys don't miss that one. That should be fun. Let's uh, let's check out this uh, thread from Glenn Greenwald, just demonstrating once again that I have ideological pliability that I'm able to <laughs> to read and appreciate people that are you know not in our camp politically. Um, but he is absolutely tremendous when it comes to the censorship apparatus. From the government so i'm going to read a little bit of it because i know you said you hadn't hadn't seen this one uh the regime of censorship being imposed on the internet by a consortium of dc dems billionaire funded disinformation experts the u.s security state and liberal employees of media corporations is dangerously intensifying in ways i believe are not adequately understood <clears throat> a series of crises have been cynically and aggressively exploited to inex inexorably restrict the range of permitted views and expand pretexts for online silencing and deplatforming. Trump's election, Russiagate 1-6, COVID, and war in Ukraine all fostered new methods of repression. During the failed attempt in January to force Spotify to remove Joe Rogan, the country's most popular podcaster, remember that? I wrote that the current religion of Western liberals in politics and media is censorship, their prime weapon of activism. 
But that Rogan failure only strengthened their repressive campaigns. Dems routinely abuse their majoritarian power in D.C. to explicitly coerce big tech silencing of their opponents and dissent. This is government censorship disguised as corporate autonomy. I'll keep reading it, but any uh, any disagreements as of yet? Because I don't have any. No. <laughs> this is okay. pretty spot on. Yeah. Uh, he says, there's now an entire new industry aligned with Dems to pressure big tech to censor. Think tanks and self-proclaimed disinformation experts funded by Omidia, Omidyar, that's uh, Pierre, uh, Soros and the U.S.-U.K. security state use benign-sounding names to glorify ideological censorship as neutral expertise. I mean, talk about 1984 that you have, uh, you know, Commission on Information Disorder, you know, stuff like, but then ultimately they're just propagating uh, misinformation. Uh, mm -hmm. The worst, most viral arm of this regime are the censorship-mad liberal employees of big media corporations. He then lists three people, including Taylor Lorenz, which I cannot uh, disagree with, uh, New York Times tech unit masquerading as journalists. They align with the scummiest Dem groups to silence and deplatform. It is astonishing to watch Dems and their allies and media corporations posture as opponents of fascism while their main goal is to unite state and corporate power to censor their critics and degrade the internet into an increasingly repressive weapon of information control. I think this is an interesting time to just pause and talk about how Glenn Greenwald in particular, knowing all this, can still be a big government advocate. <laughs> like, it's so, it, I mean, it's, it's exactly the point we made prior to reading this thread, but it, it does bewilder me as to how this guy can be so right about this yeah. and still go like, but we should just reform the government and make sure that big business is under control. It's like, what the fuck are we talking about, man? I don't know. Yeah, <clears throat> it makes me so mad too because he's so much better on this stuff than a lot of libertarians are. He um, is. You know, and like Abby Martin and Caitlin Johnstone, people like that, they're often way better on important stuff than a lot of libertarians. But yeah, man, the disconnect. I, I mean, I think you made this point in the video on the convo couch yesterday that um the incentive or maybe it was dave i forget who it was but the incentive the natural incentive of these big tech companies is not to censor people it's to allow a flourishing marketplace where more people want to join the platform like without any outside pressure that is what they would want to do but yeah, because of days. things, uh, yeah, because of things like ESG and government force, they have to comply with these bullshit rules that make thousands of people leave the platform, make their stocks tank, you know. So the idea that somehow letting this market go free and removing government censorship would, you know, somehow be detrimental or something, and that what we actually need to do is, you know turn these into completely public platforms owned by the government and regulated by the government without private interest is just completely counterproductive because the private interest is what created that place in the beginning, you know, created that space for such a vibrant platform of well, disagreement and controversy. Oftentimes their, their solution is to make these public utilities. And it's yeah. like, are you at all fucking familiar with how public utilities function? <laughs> They're I am. horrific. They're horrific monopolies. <laughs> they're terrible. Um, I mean, yeah, you look someone at California who right now, they're having blackouts because of it. Fucking crazy. Yeah, as someone who worked in the power line industry for like six years, I can tell you the only thing that's worse than public utilities is the government. Because like these public utilities are 
usually like quasi private, at least in the Northeast, like they have private ownership, but they're like run, um, you know, they're basically run like a government because they uh, have a guaranteed income from all the meters that are spinning and everything. And then they get tons of government bailouts whenever there's a storm or something, they get all this, uh, you know, all, all the, uh, I forget what the term is. I don't know why I can't think of it off the top of my head, but uh, FEMA, they get all this FEMA money when mm-hmm. a natural disaster happens or something. And it's the closest thing to government without being government that you can have. Um, and whenever they weren't relying on FEMA money to bail them out, like if a storm happened and they had to get the meters turning again and they had to get crews out on the lines repairing stuff, they were kind of moving right along because they were losing money because those meters weren't spinning. And then as soon as the FEMA money kicks in and the utilities are off the hook, they don't have to worry about anything anymore because the federal government's bailing them out. So all the competition would go out the window. All the time restraint would go out the window. No one would care. We'd have hundreds of employees uh, that were contractors working for the utilities just sitting in parking lots doing nothing for days. So the idea that what we need to do to make these things that are already extremely dysfunctional work better is just have the government completely own them with no private ownership at all and no you know, incentive for competition. Right. Bad idea, can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. And it, it's so frustrating as someone you know who spent 35 plus years in California and just watched what big government did to that economy and moreover civilization there. Um, it's just so self-evident at this point, empirically so, that it is counterproductive to turn towards the government to alleviate these, you know, cultural issues or or economic ones or anything. Um, and I think this is ultimately why, you know, I conclude that anarchism is the way forward. Is like I've just witnessed it firsthand. Like California is fucking falling apart. And I, I actually sp- uh, spoke to my good friend Liz last night for the first time in a while, and uh, and she updated me on the state of San Diego, the condition of San Diego. I mean. And, and she's like, there are, you know, meth addicts and heroin addicts, like under every overpass now. Like she, she was like, you know, it, you probably remember, I said the, the moment I decided I was leaving was when a homeless dude shat in my front yard. <laughs> and, and I, and I was like, okay, like it's, and I, I lived in Carlsbad, which is this beautiful beachfront town, very uh, picturesque, total tourist, you know, area. And, and the fact that the cops there and the city council there. We're just like, there's nothing. We're not, not only is there nothing we can do, but we're not going to do anything. You know, it's like, we're just, we're not going to do it and deal with it. And I feel like that's, that's now the mindset. I actually didn't expect or intend to talk to you about this, but, and we've, we've talked about it in the past, but it, it does force my, you know, my status mentality into, into gear just simply because of the condition that we're forced into because of the existence of the state where I'm like, okay, if you're going to make it so that it's illegal for me to like violently remove homeless people from my property, which it is illegal. (laughs) Um, and they could just come and shit on my front yard and, and ultimately the cops will do nothing about it. Is that not, you know, kind of definitionally anarcho tyranny as opposed to anarchy? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, if the government is going to be there, it's supposed to protect you and your property and your rights. And we saw throughout 2020, the only time the government really got involved is if you defended yourself, um, like the Moklowskis or Kyle Rittenhouse or whatever, you know, like or the, the all... dude that owned the uh, the pawn shop in Minneapolis, too. He got arrested and charged with murder for killing a, uh, a looter. Yeah. So, like, if you actually take business into your own hands, you 
are at the mercy of the government, but all these people running around looting and burning and stealing, you know, most of them get away with it. That's completely unfair. Um, and a lot of libertarians were just wrong about this, you know, in 2020, um, because they were, they only saw the anarcho half, not the tyranny half. Like they didn't see that a lot of this was being spurred on by the government, in my opinion. Like you, you saw the police go and like leave pallets of bricks outside of stores sometimes. And so when all these people come in and start throwing bricks that the police left out for them, are you really going to say that that's like some organic uprising against the uh, the bourgeoisie or whatever you think it is? Like, no, this is totally like intentional. They're trying to cause all this chaos so that people- I would kinda... argue it was, it was the FBI more than local police, but maybe the local yeah, police well, were doing their bidding. They're probably doing it for them or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it, it was such a mess, man. And- um you know, if if we embrace chaos, people aren't going to turn toward liberty. Like, it's just not how it works. You know, like here in New Hampshire, things are very peaceful. There's a high trust society. You spent a week here, you know, up at Porkfest. Yeah. It's very, uh, very different than like downtown Minneapolis or downtown <laughs> Detroit or something. And people don't understand that, you know, in order for people to be interested in liberty, they have to already like the trend that things are going toward. You're not going to snap people into Liberty with riots. You know, they're going to embrace right. like, okay, well I want the guy to come and beat your face in for me. So you don't, you know, damage my car, or burn my store down or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I basically agree with you. Remember on the four horsemen, the first one you were on last year where Eric was talking about how he didn't want to take anyone's guns away or whatever. He was <laughs> yes, pretty flushed. Yes. <laughs> but he was almost embarrassed to tell us that he called the cops after a guy shot a gun into his house. And it's like, dude, under the system we live in now, like that's how you deal with that stuff. Like it's yeah. not like you can just go take it from him and say, all right, this is it'd my be pretty gun crazy now. to deal with it otherwise, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I I agree. Like people who that I mean, I feel like the term living in Ancapistan in your head has been overused to justify a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be justified. But I think that was the original intent of that statement is like you are living in Ancapistan in your head if you don't understand that like this is the system we have now. And yeah, it should be reformed 100%. But if you call the cops to take care of some violent person who's trying to harm you or someone who's destroying your property or something that you're somehow a sellout like now nah, it's ridiculous i don't i don't uh, think that quick quick uh you know addition to this conversation i saw ace yesterday saying that you do not have a right to uh, you know violently remove someone from your property unless they are i guess a threat or something to that effect and and i find that kind of fascinating because you know from my from my vantage point i think that you have property rights and if someone is on your property you ask them to leave and they won't you have a you have the right to violently remove them at that point. I think it's you know maybe I have too loose of an interpretation of what is aggression, but I feel like if my property is you know part of my belongings, or or I guess from a libertarian vantage point, it could be even argued that you know I own myself, I own my property, I can defend myself, I can defend my property. You can take it all the way to that level. What at your in your opinion is an extent of aggression that would justify violence? Because I I'm kind of I, th I guess I'm an extremist on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a difference between, you know, right to violence or like non-aggression versus 
being a good person, right? So sure. like it, it, it's totally within your rights if a starving old man is outside in like sub-zero temperatures and he comes up to your door and just asks, hey, could I just have a cup of hot coffee and like stand inside your house for 20 minutes or whatever? Like right. totally within your rights to slam the door in his face and say, get the fuck <laughs> off my property. Now, do I think you're a piece of shit human being if you do that? Yes. Like yeah, I would totally I, give him a cup. I'm, I'm, I'm more referencing the homeless dude that shit on my front yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, well, not, uh, not the freezing old man. No, no, no. And I get that. And I'm, I'm just trying to frame something uh, here because people tend to think the non-aggression principle means doing the right thing all the time. And I don't think that like the good Samaritan was going beyond the non-aggression principle. Like he could have totally left the guy in the ditch to die and there would have been nothing aggressive right. about that. It would just be like, oh, I'm just minding my own business. I'm doing my own thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it's within your rights. Like if, I mean, like if someone wanders onto your property and you shoot them with a shotgun or something, oh yeah, no, that's messed up. That's like super messed up. But if you like tell people repeatedly, like, hey, you're not allowed here. Get off my property. Get off my property. And they keep coming, and you've got to like violently remove them in some way. Then yeah, I think you are justified in doing that. Um, and I don't know. It gets gets tricky like how violent you're going to be like if someone or let me just put it this way like if i saw someone like trying to break into my car and i had a gun on me i wouldn't instantly shoot them in the head for doing something like that like i would seek some other form of scaring them off before yeah, actually killing same. them or something but yeah when it comes down to strictly a rights-based thing then yeah if someone's stealing something from you or attacking you or on your property you i think you right. have the full right to do whatever is necessary to remove them. Well, maybe I'll, I'll hash this out with Ace at some point because I, I, I feel like they have a very kind of a hippie version of property rights that I don't really yeah. fully wrap my head around. So I don't know. Anyways, let's uh, continue with the thread. It, it is astonishing to watch Dems and their allies and media corporations posture as opponents of fascism while they're. Oh, we we already read this one. Um, a major myth that must be quickly dismantled. Political censorship is not the byproduct of uh, autonomous choices of big tech companies. This is happening because DC Dems and U.S. security state are threatening reprisals if they refuse. They're explicit. He then has 11 second video that that uh, has a politician basically saying the the problem is not that we censor too much. It's that we censor too little. <laughs> <clears throat> but the worst is watching people whose job title in corporate HR departments is journalists take the lead in agitating for censorship. They exploit the platforms of corporate giants to pioneer increasingly dangerous means of banning dissenters. These are the authoritarians. Obviously true. Uh, this is the frog in boiling water problem. The increase in censorship is gradual but continuous, preventing recognition of how severe it's become. The EU now legally mandates censorship of Russian news. They've made it illegal for companies to air it. Let's let's uh, pause there because I think that's a, uh, a concerning one. Um, it's oh sh I didn't even put the tweet up on the screen. My mistake. Um, is is there a remedy to that? I mean, it like especially in the the a period of war like this, you're going to have disinformation, misinformation that comes from both sides. I mean, I I think it's totally naive when people say like, no, RT is the real news. I'm like, look. RT definitely tells the truth about some things that we're not getting elsewhere, but I, I would be completely naive to think that RT doesn't also have probably some influence from the Kremlin 
in in what they're allowed to talk about too. I, I, am I crazy to think that, or what, what's your opinion? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's crazy to think. Um, you know, when it when it comes down to all this stuff, um, you know, what's a hundred percent true about like what side or whatever, or like whether one side is just in its reaction to something that the other side is doing. I just try to think like, okay, what is my side doing? Cause that's what I care about more. Cause that's where my money is going and my name is on that bill basically, you know? So I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Hamas kills innocent people sometimes and uh, Russia is killing a lot of innocent people in Ukraine right now. You're and sure. uh, the Chinese, you know, they don't treat, the Uyghurs very well. Like there's all these, there's all these things that are true that the other side is doing. And I'm sure like that their media is influenced to minimize those things that they are doing. What I just have to think about at the end of the day is like, okay, what about the side that I'm supporting? So Ukraine, you know, even though Putin sucks and Russia is invading Ukraine right now, and I wish they weren't, what, am I supporting in Ukraine and, you know, um, nothing good. <laughs> so like, that's what it all comes back to me with this stuff. Like, yes, I think there's probably manipulation of information on the other side too, but <clears throat> I do know some of the truth about what I am supporting with my tax dollars. And that is what I really care about the most, I guess. Yeah. Well, and there was a guy yesterday, uh, online, I don't know who it is. I haven't blocked, but, uh, someone forwarded it to me where he was arguing that, you know, the, the libertarians, the anti-war libertarians of the Mises caucus, he was implying it was us, are, are awfully quiet about, I don't know if it was like Iran or some other country, uh, North Korea, that was giving weaponry to, to Russia in their war against Ukraine. And it's like, it's like, okay, <laughs> like <laughs> we oppose the war, period. Yeah. So I, I don't understand, you know, what would my critique as an American podcaster against north korea giving weaponry to russia have like how does that impact things at all when we have the entire media apparatus the entire political establishment not only advocating but also funneling untold you know un unquantifiable sums of money and resources uh, not to mention our black ops programs that have happened over there for the past decade uh god knows how much we've actually poured into this fucking godforsaken country um what what's the value in us speaking out against you know some other nations that are also funding this proxy war that we want nothing to do with? I just I don't even understand the argumentation. You probably don't either. But what, what yeah, do you think? or at <laughs> least like let's clean our own house first. So sure. once we're not funding Israel, Saudi Arabia, or Ukraine anymore, and we're not encouraging coups in South America <laughs> and all these proxy wars all around the globe, once we truly clean that up. Yeah, and we're just taking then care I'll, of. Then America. I'll spend some time on that. <laughs> yeah, and then like if we actually become a bastion of you know human rights and uh, small government and free market capitalism and free trade and we're truly a beacon for liberty and freedom in the world, all right, then we could be like, hey, Saudi Arabia, you know, like, or I mean, we could do that now because we're supporting them, but we could be like, hey, Iran, you know, the the way you're treating your citizens is not that awesome, or you know, yeah. hey, China, like, you want to let up on the Uyghurs a little bit or whatever like okay that that's completely fine like once we get to that point but we're the biggest hypocrites in the world right now when we're supporting you know apartheid regimes around the world and doing our own coups and doing our own 
proxy wars. Like we have absolutely nowhere to stand uh, on that moral issue. So I'm going to continue criticizing America and our allies that we support until we clean our own house. And then yeah. let's talk about criticizing other regimes. Yeah. And I think this is kind of Caitlin Johnstone's point. She makes it regularly that people basically, and I hate the term whataboutism, but people really do do this when it comes to anti-interventionism or, or criticizing the American government. They very much will. What, well, what about China? Why don't you ever talk about how evil the CCP is? It's like, cause I don't fucking live under them. You know, like right. if they were invading me, I would certainly have something to say, <laughs> but, yeah. but they're not. And ultimately, my country is invading a lot of other countries, so I'm going to prioritize that. I also don't think that they, um, you know, that our fellow libertarians, quote unquote, that that uh, have issues with this type of stuff um, are privy to how it plays into the regime's hands. That, like, if you're going to be criticizing Putin right now, it's exactly like Dave said on my show two weeks ago, um, you know, don't do the bidding of the regime. I don't see how they don't see that they're doing the bidding of the regime. Do you think that they're totally oblivious to it? I, I don't, I really can't wrap my head around how they think that, you know, talking right now about how evil Putin is, is a productive enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of them I don't believe are just being duped into it. A lot of them, I think, do like passively support Ukraine or Cuba uh, or, you know, uh, whatever. Like Martha Bueno is not in the Libertarian Party anymore, but... I from a from like an early stage I didn't get along with her because I was arguing that look if we want Cuba to embrace freedom we should lift our trade embargo with them and just have like you know open trade and that's the best thing we can do and not be aggressive toward them militarily in, in any way and you know now she's like kind of basically admitted that she is a hawk and wants to have regime change in Cuba you know so I I think a lot of people are like that like they're trying to not let on that that is what they want to see happen and if right. they're put on the spot about it maybe they'll be like yeah you know i oppose using tax dollars to send weapons over there i think we should do it voluntarily blah 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 but let's be real that's not going to happen we're not going to voluntarily send <laughs> weapons to ukraine or cuba or whatever like if it happens the cia or the military industrial complex will be doing it and it will be to further the goals of the united states government not the people of that country so i it seems so obvious it seems it so I, I don't know i think a lot of people are passively supportive more than they are just kind of duped into saying something dumb well, <clears throat> this leads me kind of naturally into another issue that I've had with some libertarians that I've seen is they, they oftentimes talk about, you know, the, the freedom of other people across the planet as if it's as important as our own. And I'm this may sound from their perspective really appalling, but ultimately, I believe that it's all of our individual fights to become more free. And and it's like what can I actually do for someone who doesn't want to be free in Ukraine, much less in my own country? You know, this is why ultimately I've concluded that, you know, peaceful national divorce is, is the most productive and ultimately the only peaceful option that we probably have is that I don't care if someone doesn't want to be as free as I want to be. And, and I feel like the globalist libertarian mindset of being anti-war on the planet and also anti-tyranny on the planet is kind of counter to my vision of libertarianism. 
And I've never made that point explicit, but I think I elucidated it well enough. To, what, what do you yeah. think about that? I mean, if you're a global libertarian, you're basically a neocon. I don't really understand the difference, right? Like if you're trying that, That's how to, I feel, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to coerce nations into being more respective of human rights, I don't understand how that's different than what Bill Crystal says he wants to do. And that's just not what I believe in. Like, would I like the whole world to respect human rights? Absolutely. Would I like for theocracies and dictatorships to fall apart overnight? Yes, 100%. Right. But um, I take what you're and I know you do too, because you moved to Florida, but I take what you're saying, like even further, if the people of California don't want to be free, then there's nothing we can do about it. If the people of, uh, you know, New York, whatever, like people in our own country, like you said, if they don't want to be free, I don't think there's uh, anything we can do or should do to, um, you know, to try to change their minds. Like, and and uh, the more and more decentralized we go, the closer we get to secession. Um, I think the better it is because the 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 best thing we could do is become like a bastion of liberty in New Hampshire or Florida or whatever the state is, and try to convince everyone else that they should be similar to us because they'll have a higher standard of living they'll right. have more freedom and we just want yeah. to be as attractive to them as possible and you know this will be a little hoppy and but i even think that like down to the community level like the community should be freer and you know friendlier and uh you know give a shining example to the rest of the state like if you have a city in your state that sucks the best way to influence them to be better is have autonomy in your own community and not let them dictate what they're going to do over your lives. Of course. Just prove that you're even better. So yeah, like the smallest unit can get it down to ultimately down to the individual. Like yeah. I'm going to live the best life I can. I'm going to stay out of debt. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be a good person and try to influence other people to be better. Like, so yeah, hundred percent what you said. And I, I'd say like all the way down to the individual, it's gotta be. For sure. And uh, you know, I think that the best, argumentation is to give them empirical evidence that our belief system is ultimately better that if we have a libertarian stronghold if we have our own libertarian israel in new in new hampshire and and uh and well you know without the cia backing um because yeah. <laughs> certainly we will not receive that uh no it, it would be it would be great evidence that our ideas work if we had you know the people that believed in the non-aggression principle that were interacting peacefully and uh and ultimately the economy thrived and homelessness decreased and crime dropped and you know gun rights were uh abundant like i think that's the best way that we can actually counter this entire belief system that libertarianism has never been tried in the real world and it can't work and blah, 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 blah. it's like well let's fucking prove it then let's give us one one goddamn state where we can actually prove this thing out and i think new hampshire at this point is quite clearly our best hope of that. I mean, maybe not globally, but certainly in the United States. Yeah. Make America, New Hampshire, you know, that's the, that should be the slogan. <laughs> no, but, no, um, but I'm not yeah, trying to make America, exactly. New Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> make New Hampshire, New Hampshire, and then let the rest of the States follow by example. Yeah. Make, New, um, make New Hampshire a nation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, man. Um, and you know, I think this is the biggest failing that conservatives have because they really do have this um, this vision of like national identity and not yeah. just national identity, but like global identity. Like the United States 
is the group of people that stands up to the bad guys and punches them in the face. And now the liberals also definitely have that view too. And that's like why they're so, uh, you know, insistent on us getting involved in Ukraine more than we are already. But um, I don't know. It's, it's really, it's really sad because I feel like, you know, we have Ukraine uh, for the liberals, like they, they want to fight a war against Russia. They seem hell bent and intent on it. And then a lot of Republicans have not shown me that they're any stronger against fighting a war with China and Iran. And it's just, it's just really yep. sad. Like we got to break that. We got to break the back of that spirit. You know, like we, we need Vietnam syndrome again. We need to start believing in our own communities and our own States again. Um, and, and, um, you know, the, the thing that's so unfortunate about history is like, we have it so drilled into our brains that the two wars we absolutely had to fight were world war two and the civil war, because they were like against like the, the most evil things that ever evil, existed. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's true. The things, you know, the, but I wouldn't say the civil war was over slavery. And I would also say world war two wasn't over ending the Holocaust or whatever. It was much more complicated than that. There were a bunch of financial interests that got us involved in both those wars, but you're both kidding of those... me. A war with financial interests <laughs> at the at the reason for it? I can't believe it. I know, but like the what we have taken away from that is like this idea that we do have a responsibility to stop the next Hitler from rising to power ever, and so that's why we get involved in all these wars all around the world now, and then. Back home, we do have this idea that we need to maintain our sovereignty as a single country, and we need to be like a United States of America, you know, a union that cannot be dissolved. Like, those are just two things that have been drilled into our brains. Those are the two good wars we fought, and we need to continue that into the future. And I don't think that's true. Like, I think we do need to, first of all, not worry about who's get rising to power around the world. It's none of our business and we can lead countries in a better direction by being good stewards of freedom and liberty ourselves. But then also that we don't need to be one giant state ruling over 330 million people. Right. And that if we decentralize awful things, aren't just going to start happening all over the place. We're not going to reinstitute slavery overnight or something like these, these ideas are just crazy and they've been, bred into our you know uh education systems and it's just our default we all think that if we don't fight the global war for freedom and if we don't maintain our single countryhood here at home then we're just going to fall apart and i don't think either are true yeah it's basically an extrapolation of the uh i forget the term for it but it was like the 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 red march or something like that where th there was this belief that the communists you know if you don't stop them here they're just going to keep coming keep coming right. and uh and i i the, that ethos is now kind of like embedded in the american ethos and that's really tragic to me because i think it's so you know history just demonstrates it to be false you know communism fails on its own we don't ultimately need to uh <laughs> risk nuclear holocaust at every turn to try and prevent it i'll have daniel mcadams on on tuesday uh to to discuss this a little bit more but i mean the the uh, the narrative about uh, early on people have kind of stopped saying it now that Russia hasn't just completely trounced the Ukrainians but uh, early on there was this argumentation that if we were not to stop Putin now he was going to roll across the Baltics and into Europe and right. you know blah 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 <laughs> it's like it's like I, I don't think anybody has any uh, like actual understanding of the Russian military's capacity 
uh, much less their motivation in this in this conflict. I think it's completely laughable to believe that Russia has the intention or the or the ability to take over Europe. Uh, am, am I crazy? I, I don't think I am. No, I don't think you are, man. I mean, we just have these Hollywood narratives about these, you know, powers overseas that they're going to come and destroy us if we don't get rid of them now. And uh, I just did an episode everyone should go check out with Quinn Driggs about the uh, the hold that the military industrial complex and the intelligence agencies have on Hollywood mm -hmm. and how incredibly powerful that propaganda is that's been drilled into our brains since we were kids. And that's 100% what they're doing. They're just trying to use the same narrative over and over again. We're always the good guys. We always got to go beat up the bad guys and stop them from destroying everything. And we're the strongest nation in the world because we are one, you know, as America and we need to remain united. And as long as we remain united, um, you know, there's nothing we can't do. I, um, you must have heard people say this before. They're like, I miss 9-12. I miss the day after 9-11 because the day after 9-11, we were all united as a country and we all loved each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. I don't miss that. Like that's when we did the dumbest <laughs> shit in history. Like when, or the, or right after Pearl Harbor, whatever it is, like right after some giant uh, tragedy takes place, some sort of attack, right. that's when America is going to do something really fucking dumb. So yeah. when we're most united and have this, sense of oneness is when we do the most stupid shit right we've ever especially done when we history. have a sense of, a sense of moral uh certitude yes uh, which is what we had on 9 12 it was like we are the victims the people that attacked us whoever the fuck they may be are ultimately you know the uh, the enemies and obviously i think whoever it was that attacked us were our legitimate enemies but you know the, the questions as to who those people were uh are very much in doubt and even to this day they're still somewhat in doubt and and ultimately the people that we went and blew up uh for the most part i'd say 99.999% had nothing to do with it and it's just like that that is such a dangerous uh moment anytime uh, any nation for that matter is in that mindset of like yeah we're going to turn to the government to resolve this and as many people have said when there's a, a bill that's passed in a bipartisan fashion you know you're getting fucked by both ends and and i feel like that's kind of what this is it's like I think I, there was one vote against the uh, the continuing resolution for war, or whatever it was called, and um, yeah, just yeah. anytime, anytime that happens, you you know, fuckery's afoot. Yeah, Barbara Lee, the only vote, the uh, the authorization of use for military force. Um, yeah, yeah AUMF. Shout out to Barbara Lee. Yeah, um, I mean, she's probably awful on everything else, but yeah, I think God she's even awful on that. war now. <laughs> <laughs> I think she I think she supports the war in Ukraine. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but um, yeah, man. Like the, the the times where we're uneasy and we've just been defeated by you know <clears throat> Vietnam or Afghanistan or whatever. Like I think those are our best moments, actually. Like so, don't mm. get me wrong. Like the people dying, it's tragic, but yeah, I get yeah, it. exactly. Like it sucks. It's sad. The people dying in Afghanistan as we pulled out. Like yeah, that's awful. But I'm glad that it was such a disaster when we pulled out, uh, you know, optics wise, because yeah. that's what that whole war was. If we had just buttoned it up nicely and like mission accomplished, we're leaving Afghanistan, it would have been the biggest lie on the face of the earth because that war point. was hell for 20 years and it wasn't over getting Al Qaeda. They offered, uh, you know, they offered to turn 
uh, Osama bin Laden and his acolytes over to us, you know, Bora, like Bora, one month December the of, yeah. of 02 or 03, I believe. Yeah. And like we could have avoided this entire thing. We could have been home by Christmas 2001. It could have all been over. But uh, nope, we had to like just, you know, take over a bunch of countries, drop a bunch of bombs, kill a bunch of people. So um, I think we just really need that Vietnam syndrome. Again, we need to understand that getting involved in these debacles is not going to make us safer and it's not going to look good for the United States either. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Afghanistan pullout made the United States look bad, I think is actually a net positive. Yeah, I, I think there's a fair argument to be had on that front. Um, and, you know, Jesse Kelly, uh, who I'm trying to get on my show, by the way, I shout out Jesse, come on the show. He, he always says, uh, we're going to lose a major war. That's something that he, he quote tweets things when like wokeness is being put into our military and, and all sorts of other reasons. Um, I tend to agree with him though. And, and I think that that's really concerning to me because one, it implies a major war, which I don't want. Um, mm -hmm. and two, I don't really want to lose a major war either. You yeah. know, it's like, like, especially when it comes down to how it would have to happen for America to lose a major war, it would be, you know, quite arguably a nuclear outcome. Um, because I don't think that our, our establishment would accept a loss without going nuclear. And that's very concerning to me. Um, but I tend to, I tend to think Jesse's right. And I think that's what's, what's tragic about it is like, instead of, just recognizing that we are no longer the obvious global hegemon and and realizing we can no longer police the planet how we once did and ultimately that there are challengers to the throne it's kind of a game of thrones thing like <clears throat> are you going to require the challenger to to dethrone you violently or are you going to accept him to take control over his own little fiefdom and i would just i would greatly prefer the latter just say okay fucking Russia and China now control the East. Like that's, it's natural that that would be the case anyway. So, uh, you know, even if they're tyrants and I don't love them, I would prefer that over risking nuclear Holocaust to maintain our stranglehold over the shipping lanes of the Eastern seaboard. It's like, what the fuck are we doing, man? Yeah, I agree with that. And even though you and I ultimately would like some for, <clears throat> uh, some form of secession or at least like radical decentralization or nullification or whatever, I think, you know, a step in that direction when you're talking to conservatives is to try to convince them that the American ideal is about isolationism, basically. You know, like yeah. we were sick of the British Empire because we didn't want to pay for the French and Indian War. Um, and the French and Indian War was arguably much more justified, at least on the colonists' behalf, than the war in Iraq or the war in Syria or, you know, intervention in Libya uh, Yemen, you know, any of these places, like they have absolutely nothing to do with us. So if we can convince conservatives, like, look, if you really believe, if you love America, you love what makes America great. It's been our separation from the empire. And then all the great innovations we made in an unregulated economy, basically, like that's what led to the success of America. And our imperialism is what has brought us where we are now. You know, like we used to be number one in the world. Now we're not anymore. And we've drained our economy on useless wars that we never should have fought. We should have just focused on our own country. And I think if we can convince them of that, we're at least moving them in the right direction. Uh, I know we talked about this on Adam Nutter's show the other night, but most liberals are just lost. Like, I'm not even trying. 
to communicate with most of them anymore. But to those left wingers who like truly hate war and truly just want to stick up for the little guy, like you got to realize the big government that we have, the largest government that's ever existed in the history of the world, it's never going to start becoming benevolent and caring about the downtrodden. That's not no. what governments ever do. They're not designed for that. Governments look out for the big guy so that the big guy can pad the government's pockets. That's pretty yeah, much and to works. And to the conservative side, that is also unreachable. Let me try and reach them by saying the biggest government in the history of the world is not going to be interested in defending your rights, brother. Right. <laughs> you know, like if if the left is wrong, so is the right. It's it's ultimately the size of this government that is the problem. And and I think it's just fucking obviously the case. And yet you you can't get unanimity amongst our you know disparate groups the left and the right to just fucking recognize this obvious truth like if you think that you can get the government to do your bidding be it defending your rights or be it uh you know giving you a social safety net you're just deluded i mean we you couldn't have basically a a, a bigger tax basis than what our country has right now and yet we still have you know record homelessness and drug addiction and all sorts of craziness and we have record in my opinion, uh, there's no way to quantify this, but record-setting uh, abdication or, or overthrowing of our personal liberties, and and I just feel like if we can't come together on this one thing of like this government must be dramatically reduced in its size, well then we're going to ultimately collapse. And I think that's, you know, I, I, as you're aware, I'm I'm pretty much concluded that we're going to collapse. Like the there there is no bipartisan support, not even fucking close. It's like. 2% of politicians would actually be on board with what I'm about to say, but it's, this, this is intractable, like because of, because of the populace, because of the indoctrination, because of the empire, because of the fascistic alliance between big business and big government, um, ultimately this is going to run into the rocks. So it just comes down to, can we get a few enclaves of liberty for which we can survive? And, and I think that New Hampshire, maybe Tennessee, maybe Texas, maybe Florida, a handful of other places uh, might have a chance of weathering this better than, you know, California and New York, which are going to be fucking hellscapes. But I really think that the the economic uh, implosion that comes with a dying empire is unless people like snap out of it over the next year. And if, if they didn't snap out of it during the past two years, I'm pretty much out of hope that they will. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to save yourself at this point like i mean because yeah. like you said not enough people are going to go along with it even in new hampshire or florida enough people probably won't go along with it to actually secede or nullify everything so True. at the end of the day all you can really do is prepare yourself so make sure you either have some sort of skill that's really valuable beyond this inflated bubble economy we live in uh that is you know letting a lot of air out of the bubble at this moment but we're still like we're still living in somewhat of a bubble where a useless degree or a useless job is still getting some people by where if we enter a true recession, yeah. it's not going to happen anymore. So you got to have something that you can lean back on, make sure you have good community, good friends that can help you out and um, you know, make sure you're financially sound. And I have been all those things for years and I'm, you know, I'm ready for whatever is coming our way, but a lot of people aren't. And, mm. you know, just voting Republican this, November isn't going to fix all of it. You know, a lot of people are so uninformed that they think this is all because of Biden. 
Uh, this is systemic, goes back before Biden, before Trump. It's, you know, it it's both Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, you know, all the presidents for the last several decades who have Clinton, Bush, Reagan, Carter, all of them. <laughs> Nixon. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is it's so obviously a bipartisan issue and and there's really no there's no impetus for genuine reforms at this point. And I think like it's it's either going to be a global Great Depression or it's going to be a global war that resets this and and that uh you know either outcome is horrifying obviously i would prefer a global great depression over a global world war because i think that it would it would go nuclear <clears throat> but uh yeah i mean even as as ready as i am financially and otherwise uh you know skill set and stuff uh, obviously now having a internet show where i can pretty much do this wherever i'm not ready i don't have a bunker and i'm fucking living around a couple million people so i am not in the spot i'm supposed to be and and I'll, i hope to remedy that in the next year and i really i hope that my audience is is taking this seriously and and that they're they're starting to do what you're describing and, and prepare for their own their own life as well as obviously their their loved ones um i really think that it's it's going to be you know the 2023 to 2025 range of our existence is going to be probably the most tumultuous in our lives and we just went through what in my opinion was clearly the most tumultuous uh, period in my life so it's gonna yeah. it's gonna be real interesting anyways uh, give us uh, any final comments and then we'll do plugs and get you out of here yeah man just uh you know when you move out of your high rise in miami just move <laughs> up to here in new hampshire and yes, then you, yes, can, exactly. you can share a bunker so <laughs> I, I might man i might <laughs> Yeah, I've got we got lots of guns here. Um, <laughs> they're going to drone strike us anyway, but at least we'll have a fighting <laughs> chance. <laughs> It'll be fun anyways. Uh, everybody go subscribe to Naturalist Capitalist. Anything else you'd like to tell the people? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm perma banned off Twitter like in a hard way. And Clint knows this. I've tried yeah. a couple times making burner accounts. The first one I named after myself, it was still Reed Coverdale and it got nuked within like two days. I just made another one ulysses liberty and i didn't have any pictures or any links or anything and they still got me uh within three or four days so i'm i'm nuked off twitter unless i can get the original suspension repealed i won't be back uh but follow libertarian party in new hampshire they're posting lots of fire shit lately <laughs> um and i'm on telegram uh if you just look up reed coverdale on telegram you can find me there i'm using that as kind of my alternative to Twitter. It's not that great, but I, I am starting to build up a following there. Uh, and I have a Substack. If you just go to read Coverdale Substack, um, you know, you can you can find that. I'm putting out articles two or three times a week. And uh, then, yeah, I'm the naturalist capitalist on YouTube, Odyssey. I just joined Rumble. Everything that's on YouTube is copied over to Rumble. Uh, and then I'm on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that. Just look up naturalist capitalist for my podcast and if you're just trying to follow me on any uh platform just look up reed coverdale i'm the only one in the world and i have a link tree uh where you can find all that stuff and clint just wanted to say man i'm super happy for you i'm glad you're blowing up you deserve it i mean i have been doing this as like my part-time thing along with trucking until recently but you have like fully dove into this since like the beginning of 2020 and you have the knowledge and I know you said you're you're a little more humble about it. You're not sure you deserve it. But man, with all the people who have huge followings out there with absolutely nothing to say, like I'm so <laughs> glad people are listening to you and I hope the uh, Alex Jones episode goes well. Well, thank you, man. Uh, I I hope I hope for all of our sake that uh, the people of our ilk, whoever it may be, 
um, ultimately gain further influence. Uh, we, we desperately need it in my estimation. And if I end up being one of those voices, then cool. You know, I, I'm, I, the whole reason I got involved with this is because I got to hear someone espousing my ideals on the biggest platform in the world seven years ago when, when Dave Smith first went on Joe Rogan and, uh, or six years ago, I don't know how long ago it was. And I was like, there's hope, there's hope. <laughs> so I, I hope that I can, uh, can spread some additional hope. I hope more people feel as if, if I, if my success inspires someone else to, to give this a go or give whatever, you know, enterprise they want to explore a go. Um, I think that that's, that's headed in the right direction. So, uh, speaking of headed in the, in the right direction, everybody head over to naturalist capitalist and subscribe and also follow tower gang or tower power hour on yes. odyssey. That is our legion of skanks version of libertarianism kind of, uh, where we talk a lot of pee pee poo poo and do a lot of dumb shit, but it's really fun, <laughs> and uh, and people we're just more really retarded basically. We're the same, yeah. just more retarded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we like this is it. Just it goes to show our, our diversity of skill set that we're able to have a very, very conscientious, uh, thoughtful conversation for the past hour or so, and then we can go over and do an hour and a half of just talking about completely r ridiculous <laughs> shit. So, um, anyways, uh, oh, lastly, if you guys want to pick up Naturalist Cap Capitalist merch or Liberty Lockdown merch or Tower Gang merch, go over to toplobster.com. We are out. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's before we get into the episode with Dan Sanchez, I want to thank our other sponsor for today's show, and that is Expat Money Summit. Their upcoming online summit starts very soon by my friend Mikkel Thorpe from expatmoney.com with over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. It's a multi-day event, and it's completely free to attend. Do not miss out on this. Go to expatmoneysummit.com. Reclaim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty. Topics will include a multitude of things, including how to secure your own plan B safe haven. I didn't put my phone on mute and I apologize for that. How to use foreign currencies, offshore banking and decentralized finance to safeguard your money. How to legally reduce your tax burden legally, how and where to safely store gold, silver and other precious metals, where the best countries are in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family, a bunch of other things. But most importantly, just added to the lineup, the great Ron Paul. And this costs you nothing. Register now for free expatmoneysummit.com. This is your way to fight back against what is happening in the world. Stand up, protect yourself, and find out how to secure your new life abroad. Again, register for free over at expatmoneysummit.com. And now, enjoy my sit-down, lengthy interview with Mr. Dan Sanchez. It is it's a deep dive, but I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. Thank you for joining us. For all the new subscribers off of the uh, the Dave Smith and Sticks debate, this is going to be more of the the normal style show where I just have on a single guest and we go deep, go deep as possible. Today I have on Dan Sanchez. He is the editor in chief of FEE Online, that's uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Thank you for having me, Clint. Great to be here. Absolutely, man. Um, so. I was actually put in contact with you because of uh, mutual friends, uh, Maggie Anders. She she was like, hey, you got to check out this guy's work. So I started reading and I was like, oh, shit, this guy knows what's up. <laughs> like he, He's on the same page as me. So uh, I think this will be a good one. <clears throat> so you've been uh, obviously covering ESG. Uh, you also were talking about Leonard Reed and his, his uh, methodology for spreading the ideas of liberty. 
Uh, which which would you like to start with? I'm I'm good with either. Um, Leonard Reed would be good. Okay. Well, go ahead and for those that aren't familiar with him, tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So Leonard Reed is the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, where I work, uh, or or Fee, and he um, is also the author of I Pencil, which is like a classic liberty text that has opened a lot of eyes, and um, and he had a lot of really strong ideas about what he called the methodology of, of freedom. And um, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I, I even though I, I loved iPencil and I loved a lot of his articles, I didn't really study his um, methodology of freedom content closely until fairly recently. And it's just been another sort of eye-opening moment of an epiphany about um, how I think liberty, um, we, we can actually advance liberty. And so I've been writing a series of articles about that on fee.org. Nice. Uh, so what, what is his, his premise here? Uh, uh, obviously, he has some, some points of disagreement with the, the Mises Caucus tactics. So I'm curious as to, you know, a little bit more of the underpinning to it. Um, in a nutshell, he um, said that right method uh, is self-improvement. And, um, and so I, I, I don't think that he, um, I mean, he, he definitely, um, obviously he, you know, died long before the, the Mises caucus came about, but Mises himself, like he, um, he was very close with, um, Ludwig von Mises actually was on the staff of the Foundation for Economic Education, um, and, um, and the, the, and Fee also really played a pivotal role in getting human action published and, and Mises would also speak at, at Fee events. And, um, and so I, he, he agreed with Mises on, um, on how to change the world, um, because what Mises talked about is spreading the ideas, um, is, is spreading especially sound economics because ultimately it's the ideology of the public that determines where the, the, the polity goes. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, th they've said that, cult that politics is downstream from culture. Well, Mises taught that both uh, politics and culture are downstream from ideas. And, um, and, so and so they very much agreed with that. And, and I think that is very much in agreement with a lot of um, what the Mises Caucus is actually trying to do. Because from, from what I understand, the Mises Caucus is really, um, is really kind of continuing the work of the Ron Paul campaign, which was to focus ab uh, above all else on the, the ideas and the principles. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that what we really need are, um, are to you know, spread a prairie fire of liberty in the minds of, of the public. And so Ron Paul used the, the presidential platform, not necessarily to, to win in, immediately, but for, to use the, the debate platform and, and the publicity to spread the ideas. And, and that's really why we have a liberty movement the, to the, the size that we have now. And so I, I really do appreciate um, the Mises Caucus's emphasis on principles and and on not not like really being all about sort of like uh, specific policy uh, tweaks and um, and and trying and and then ultimately like making like compromises 
on policy. I really like the idea of the devotion of principle because it's spreading the principles that actually creates positive change. Um, th there, there are some like differences of, of opinion on, on some specifics about like Mises caucus um, messaging that, that I think I think Leonard Reed m might have had some some things to, to say about. Um, but um, but uh, 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 in, in general, like I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the, the emphasis on principles. Yeah, well, I, <clears throat> I think what it ultimately comes down to is being uncompromising, you know, like we're, we're really uncompromising when it comes to our principles. And, and this has been, in my opinion, why the LP has, has failed over the past 10 years or so is that, I mean, it's obviously, it's failed longer than that, but it, the past 10 years were a really stark reminder of, even though we were receiving more votes, ultimately we were getting less free. And, and if that's the case, then what's the value? And, and I think that there's a real uh, important question there. Like it, are you, first off, are you interested in just getting more voters, but ultimately having no political power and just watching things degrade further? Or are you going to use this platform, this political arena, to try and wake up as many people as possible? And I think that the latter is the, the proper response during this period. Like if you were, say, in the 80s or something, like right after we had the, uh, the record high overnight interest rates and, you know, the, the, we were kind of like resetting the system economically where we were, we didn't have a ton of debt. And, and, uh, ultimately we were looking at a 30 year period of, of pretty, uh, not pretty, but the, the most economic growth in human history. Um, that's, that's a time where you have a runway from which you can operate and you can, you can kind of slowly attain more political power. I I'm of the belief that we don't have that time like that, that we're ultimately because we, we haven't had any political power and the economic system has gotten so off the rails uh, and our culture is now degrading as a product of that. I don't think that we have time to, to play this long game of like, okay, we're going to have 2050. We're going to have a libertarian president, <laughs> you know, like, like I, I am honestly, sincerely, concerned about the next five years. I, I really believe that we are going to experience economic turmoil, the likes of which we have never seen in our lifetimes. Um, so let's let's go, let's kind of transition to that. What's your opinion? Uh, obviously, your foundation for economic education, you must have uh, some opinion as to how dire the situation is. Am I, am I overstating it? Um, no, I, I, I don't think you're overstating it at all, unfortunately. I've, I've also written a few articles about the business cycle, about the Austrian uh, theory of the business cycle and, um, and trying to explain um, how really a, a bust is a, not only inevitable, but a good thing. And mm -hmm. that the, the longer we postpone it, then, then the worse it, it will be. And, um, and I, I think that the um, quantitative easing that they've been doing I mean, since since 2007, 2008, but but especially since um, since um, 2020, um, yeah. is just um, unprecedented, and that kind of monetary expansion uh, has commensurate distortions in this in the production structure, and and the the, the chickens are are going to come home to roost, and it's just a matter of of, of when. Um, and, um, and unfortunately it's going to be a very, very painful, um, bust, but it's still a necessary one. It's still a correction. Oh, no doubt. To have happen. 
Yeah, no doubt. I, my my concern is that if the bust, which we have delayed, I mean, we really ultimately we delayed the 0809 bust, then we delayed the 2020 bust. Now we're looking at you know an even bigger uh, pent up insolvency that exists in the system, including malinvestment, um, which you you know all about. Uh, maybe you could explain to my audience from kind of a rudimentary level, or maybe this isn't rudimentary, but uh, <clears throat> what what is malinvestment and, and how, why did the, the policies of our government and moreover, our central bank uh, put us in this position? So Ludwig von Mises used the, the analogy of, of a master builder. Um, and so he, he talked about like, okay, say you have a, a builder who's um, building a, a structure and let's say that his, um, his records of what materials he has is falsified. Um, so he is going to lay the groundwork for a building that he may not have sufficient materials to finish. Um, and, um, and that is basically what the Federal Reserve does when it it um, artificially interest, uh, lowers interest rates by expanding the money supply is that it, it makes it seem like we have more available resources, more saved resources for, for in investment than we actually do. Um, and so, so California what, learned that yesterday. <laughs> oh, really? I, I didn't, I didn't catch that. How's oh that? yeah. They're, they're having rolling blackouts right now because they, uh, -huh. uh I mean, there's a litany of reasons why, but it's partially the economic malfeasance, but it's also the regulatory uh, insanity of shutting down nuclear power plants and yada, right. yada, yada. We, I didn't mean to derail you, sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> and, and so, um, but eventually, you know, economic, the economic reality is going to be revealed some way or the, uh, or the other, because uh, with a master builder, like there just literally isn't enough stuff to, to build the structure um, and the, to, to build the building. And, and with the economy, there just literally isn't an, enough saved resources to both maintain current consumption patterns and to finish all the capital projects that have been, that have been artificially stimulated. And so, so eventually economic reality has to, to, to dawn on people. And that, that can either happen through um, like, you know, hyperinflation can result for, for one thing, or finally the, the federal reserve can, can um, ease off the pump and, um, and let interest rates go, go to their natural, more towards the natural level, which reveals the actual state of things, the, the actual like availability of saved resources. And, and, and that results in entrepreneurs realizing that they actually cannot finish all of these um, projects, and so like profits turn to losses, and and that and then, it, but the thing is, is that just like with a with the master builder, once you've laid the groundwork, once you've once you've um, set things up for a, a tall building, it's not like you can say, oh well, you know, I don't have enough, so I'm just going to start building towards a smaller building. It's like no, like. The, you you have the groundwork for a large building, and so you actually have to um, liquidate your your current production, like your current structure, and um, you you have to actually like in some cases start from scratch. And that's the same way with the with the business cycle is that 
um, you have to actually liquidate certain uh, um, operations. And that's why it's painful because, because then you, you have to um, fold certain, certain uh, investment projects. You have to lay people off. And then it's a painful process of reallocating those resources in a way that actually matches the consumption and savings patterns of, of the, the people in the economy. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just that you don't have the resources to complete the project. It's that there is no end user because ultimately you usually like, because you're using the master builder, I'll continue with that metaphor. I'm building six houses as we speak. And fortunately I have them, you know, five of six are under contract and it looks like I'm going to get out before the shit hits the fan. But um, what normally happens is that what, what malinvestment in, includes is not necessarily that you don't have the resources to complete the project, but your, your, exit plan gets derailed because the end user no longer can afford to purchase your asset, which in this case is housing. Um, and I think that's that's what we're staring right in the face right now is that you have obviously lots of builders that are out there uh, building as, as rapidly as possible because inventory has been kept artificially low because of the foreclosure and eviction moratorium. And then you also have kept uh, consumer demand uh, superficially high because of the record low interest rates that were maintained for approximately 15 years now, which is fucking insanity. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we've created a, a tremendous amount of malinvestment and I'm only talking about one asset class, which is real estate. If you extrapolate that and you, you keep the record low interest rates and you consider what all of the CEOs of big businesses are doing when it comes to decision-making they're, they're including, you know, CapEx, they're doing capital expenditure and, and R and D on projects that ultimately will not have, uh, the type of ROI necessary, return on investment necessary to justify the expenditure. And and this is what malinvestment is, and this is why central banking is so fucking evil, is that they maintain interest rates below uh, what the market would ultimately demand if it were a free market. And now we have, I mean, God God only knows, trillions and trillions of dollars of malinvestment that exists in the system. And, and it, it really, like, normally you can just kick this can, but because of the inflationary environment we're in, you're going to have such suffering amongst the people if they continue to kick the can. If they reverse, if they increase QE and they lower interest rates once again, they might be able to de delay the day of reckoning. But in that situation, because of the inflation, you will continue to have shortages of goods, which will add to the, the ultimate price of, of anything that you want to acquire, which makes the poor much poorer. And I think that you'll then see civil unrest. Uh, am I missing anything in my analysis there? No, I mean, it really does seem like they have the tiger by the tail. And, um, and so like, it's understandable that they would be re reluctant, but like when, you know, when the alternative is worse, um, then it, there's no excuse for it because, uh, um, I mean, another big consideration ab about exactly how bad it is, is that a, a bust is different from other types of impoverishment. And so, and so a lot of people think that, okay, well, you know, 2020, um, you know, the economy, you know, no, nosedived. And so, you know, that was a bust. And, um, and we, you know, we had the bust that was like <laughs> in, impending, but that's not even true. Not, not because, even close. <laughs> right. Because there, there's a difference between, um, you know, an economic correction where we realize that the, the economy has been o overextended and so, so that we're, we're reallocating things versus you've just shut down the global economy and made it illegal to produce. And that, that's not a bust. That's just 
strangling the it's just production. totalitarianism <laughs> right right and and so so yes that's that's impoverishment but it's not a correction it's 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 just wanton destruction yeah it is and and uh, uh i mean this is the tragic part of it is because they pumped six trillion dollars plus god knows how many uh extra little side projects and things like that into the system we're now suffering you know pretty severe inflation uh, at least by our standards you know having give or take 10 percent inflation year over year is absolutely brutal and and what's what's so tragic about it is that the the people that that support these policies are the ones that that emphasize income inequality you know and and uh disparate economic bracket brackets and it's like first off i don't I don't view that as an inherent evil. I think it's a mistake when you just say, oh, this person has more and this person has less. So like this guy's good and this guy's bad or, or flip that. Um, but when it, when it happens because of government interference in the market, I do have tremendous sympathy for people. Like good example is the college kids, you know, like they, they're receiving uh, loans to go to these horrific colleges and, and universities. And ultimately they get an education that, is useless in the real world they come out they're buried in six figures of debt and they're like all right give me socialism like i at this point even though they're already dealing with socialism because they're receiving uh you know taxpayer funds to essentially go and allegedly pursue their dreams um but at the same time i do have sympathy for these people like they've been sold a bad bill of goods and they're young people like they don't know any better it's it's tragic and not to mention they went through the public school system which indoctrinated them for you know, 15 years into thinking that this is the only path forward. Um, what's your opinion as to how we remedy that? I mean, is there is there hope for, I don't know, reforming the, the university system? Because at this point, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty much on board with that abolition. I don't I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, I really agree with that characterization um, because it's 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 almost a form of Stockholm syndrome of uh, they're they're looking at their abusers as their saviors, um, and and I think the universities play a, a huge role in that. I I I don't think that reforming the universities is is the way forward. Like I I really think that alternatives are yeah. are are the way forward. Um, I, I think that I, I think that the um, the model of, of a university as as uh, education as necessary for developing human capital is just over, overblown. That it's just been this subsidized experience that is largely a consumption good and largely a, just a delay of adulthood, a, a delay yeah. of, of becoming productive. And and it's true that there are. You know that that there are certain correlations between um, between you know get, getting a, a degree and and not getting a degree, but that's not causation because like if if you you know if you propagandize and funnel like like everyone who's qualified in into this uh, process you know into this system you know, the, the people who tend to actually get into the system are going to be like the brighter and more uh, capable and pr productive type people in, in general, so long as that sort of myth of higher education is is out there. Um, and so there's like, like a selection bias. So, so they're, they're gonna be the type of people that earn more later, but it's not necessarily because they went 
through. I think that that's a process. that's a great point. That's an absolutely great point. I mean, good example is look at all of the uh, the entrepreneurs that are you know the richest people on the planet that that never went to college. It's like like those people would have been the type that would have been drawn to college. Many of them went for a year and then dropped out because they realized that they had a passion for something and they went out and they innovated. Um, you know, I went to college basically just because I was rudderless. You know, I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do. And and I think that's ultimately what college serves the purpose of for most people. It's not really the education as much as it is exposing you to different ideas. And hopefully, as you spend a little bit of time away from your parents, you start to get a feel for who you really are and, who, and, and what your passions are. And and hopefully that that points you in the direction of a, of a career path, which ultimately a major in college is kind of pointless because usually when you're signing up for it, like speaking for myself, I had no idea, you know, I, I like, I had some inkling as to, you know, I'm, I'm good at business. I had always had a, a you know, a, and I was always apt for entrepreneurialism and, and, uh, and math and money and things like that. So I had, a, I had a general idea, but I didn't know for sure. And I think that's what most people are using college for. It's like, like they just don't know what they want to do. So they're going to go spend four years drinking and partying and meeting girls. And that's basically what college is these days. And I think it's really a condemnation of the public school system that that you do not have these 18-year-olds, which we consider adults, they're old enough to enlist and go off and fight and die for their country, so they certainly ought to be old enough to make decisions for themselves. Uh, they really aren't prepared for life. And and I think that, that that's why I am, I agree with you, obviously, that alternative education systems are, are the way to go, uh, Fee Online being a, a great example of that, the Ron Paul curriculum, uh, homeschool curriculum being another example. It's like, is that is that really the key here? Is that people just have to take responsibility for the education of their children from the, the early stages? I think so. Um, and, and I think that um, there is a dawning realization of the ineffectiveness, both of the higher education system, but also of, um, of the public school system. And that's why you're seeing um, um, this mass exodus of, um, of, of people, especially since 2020, uh, of parents um, taking their, their kids out of, um, out of public schools and sometimes to, to homeschool them. Um, and and I, th I think that you're getting this realization that, that, the, that you, it's schooling realization. Um, anyways, I, I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit more, uh, a lot of, if you, like the, the rest of the world is falling apart. I, I think this is another interesting thing to, to add in here. There, there's something called the, the dollar milkshake theory, where if the, if the rest of the world is drowning, you know, our ship sinking doesn't feel as bad. And, and that's essentially how I, how I view the dollar right now. Like as bad as we are in terms of budgeting and spending and taxing and everything else with our economic and governmental system here, the, the rest of the world is really fucked. <laughs> like they're, they're doing terribly. You, Europe in particular is in, uh, in for a world of hurt because of the, the uh, uh, what's it called? The sanctions on, on Russia over the Ukraine war. And um, not to mention, they also had lockdowns. They've also printed, uh, you know, not trillions, but tons, tons of their own currencies locally. Um, is there any chance that the, the U S dollar ultimately? Yeah. I, the, um, Exchange rates between different currencies is one of my weak suits, so I, I don't really know that much about that. But in terms of the policy, I, I do, I have thought that they're basically like um, 
backed against a wall where they don't have any other choice except to um, to actually follow through with their plans to progressively raise interest rates is because because of basically the this the stagflation yeah. um, that that they um, that that inflation has you know really um, pinched people in a way where they can't avoid the blame like they can't they can't shift the blame to to some scapegoats and so they're, they, they're damn have they tried <laughs> yeah right right and so they um and and also like you know there there's social unrest that comes from a bust and a depression but there's also some social unrest that can come from hyperinflation too so so they have, to, they have to consider that as well yeah no i i think that that's that's what's so concerning to me as someone who's been a professional investor for you know 20 years and and uh you know has followed the market since i was a young young lad because of my my family's background i've never i've never seen a time like this like nothing even comes remotely close where you have record setting both consumer and governmental debt uh across the layer on the the downswing and i don't know which uh, uh you know amongst the inner sanctum of the powerful where they're saying like i'm sure you have you know bankers that want to and i that you are doing your listeners a huge service by by not just telling them you know what policies they they should support or or oppose but um but to, uh, helping them to get their own house in order so that whatever comes down the road that that they're that they're prepared for it yeah um, I, i'm trying <laughs> yeah no i mean that that's that's why you know people turn to me because obviously I was able to retire in my 30s and and anytime you meet anybody like when I was younger if I knew someone who had retired in their 30s I'd be like what's that guy have to say because um, you know they they figured out the game um, and I, I think that's how people you know whether I like it or not that's kind of how they look at me now they're like hey what's what's your opinion of all this and you know I, I have to be very upfront about it you know no one knows exactly what the central banks are going to do no one knows how the government's going to respond no one could have for a fact to read out what um did lease went out and i bought it's like yeah okay but there's still a boom bust cycle in that too if you haven't figured it out yet and it's largely predicated on federal reserve policy and the inflation of the mo uh, money supply and uh and i just think that like if you don't understand the boom bust cycle it's not enough to just shift to hard assets you have to know how to play this game and it takes it takes a, a next level of understanding. It's not just this rudimentary. Yes, I know the boom bust cycle. It's like no, no, no. I know when the boom and when the bust are going to happen. That's the key. Like if you know there's a boom bust cycle, that's one thing. But if you know when they're coming, that's where you actually make outsized gains. Right. Because just because you understand the game doesn't mean that you don't need to play the game. Yeah, that's another problem. Yeah. Because that's what like a lot of people when they they object to the business cycle theory um that like oh well you know wouldn't people just learn from it and then it would like and then <laughs> thus negate it but they don't realize that like just because you know that they're that you're in a bubble doesn't mean that you can afford to just not participate in it because people in your industry they are participating in yep. it and in the meantime they're going to eat your lunch Yep. Um, and, and so like you, you may know there's a bubble, but you, in order to, um, stay competitive in your business, you may need to participate in the bubble and, and just try, try to pull out like, uh, um, before it pops. Exactly. Right. And that's exactly what I did. I, 
uh, instead of uh, you know, participating in the bubble when uh, when the lockdowns happened in 2020, I shut down my mortgage company. I told all my investors, um, you know, because our our loan our our, our loan duration uh, maturity is usually two to three years. I said we have maybe two to three years before the you know the bottom falls out. Um, so I would highly encourage you guys to let these roll off and uh, and you know figure out ways to diversify yourself because I think we're in for you know severe economic pain, and I'm looking pretty prescient about now. Uh, so I hope, I hope they took my advice. Uh, I would imagine many of them either, either found, uh, you know, competing mortgage lenders to, cause I was a private money mortgage lender. If people haven't figured that out yet, um, uh, either they found a competing mortgage lender to do what I was doing for them, or they transitioned straight into the stock market, which if they did it in May, 2020, not the worst thing in the world. Uh, but I hope that they have now taken my advice and they're seeing once again that, you know, hopefully December of 2021, they were like, Hey, this is getting a little insane we're gonna withdraw or we're gonna diversify from there i mean this is this is the type of uh of knowledge that people really need to like get to like if you want to if you want to have outsized uh you know asset allocation or, or, or uh, uh you know capital growth returns on your investment if you want to retire somewhat early like you have to understand this stuff deeply it, it's it's not enough to just read a couple books like you have to read books and then you have to go out and live in the real world and actually do this shit because it's very complex and there's there's so many moving factors. Um, and then obviously you should listen to people that that understand this stuff so that you can start to see how their mind works and hopefully your mind can work similarly. It's uh it I can't I can't even express how how much it's changed my life. And it just it breaks my heart when I see libertarians that are like, you know, struggling to survive. It's like, man, you guys know what I know. I know you do. So like where's where's the disconnect here? And I I mean there obviously is a disconnect somewhere in there. Um I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah and, and this is really connects with um, Leonard Reed's ideas about the methodology of liberty and mm. about what he, he called libertarian leadership, because in the in the same way that like, you know, you learn from other people who mm, were for sure. um, and um, who, who were exemplars, you, you, you learned people who were demonstrating that they knew what they were doing. And, um, and then you learned what you were doing and then you succeeded because of that. And now like people are coming to you for leadership, for, for education because of your demonstrated competence. And, right. um, and, and so it's not that, that you walk the walk, that you don't just talk, talk the talk. And, and that really applies to liberty promotion too, because um, Leonard Reed's idea of libertarian leadership is that people who um, love liberty, that first and foremost, they need to focus on uh, their own understanding of the freedom philosophy uh, as a lifelong pursuit, as something that's never finished, that, that, that there's always more you can do to better understand the freedom philosophy. And, um, and one way of, of doing that is by trying to explain what you're learning uh, to others, trying yeah. to articulate it to others, and um, and the and the more you do that, the more that will be contagious. That that other people will see the connections that you're starting to make, and 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 they will share in in that. And, and they will um, look to you as a leader and will start to come to you as, um, 
as a source of inspiration and as a source of, of understanding. I, I think that what where where some libertarians and when where where I myself have have gone astray is that when when we make it more about reforming the other people that we're talking to and less about reforming ourselves. Um, because because then like ego starts to get involved and like winning mm. the fight starts to get involved and 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 then people don't like they 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 don't think that you're like really necessarily devoted to the truth they think they they get the picture that that maybe you're just devoted to just winning and and then um and then they they kind of close their their minds to it and mm -hmm. so so i th i think that's that's where Leonard Reed would have some advice for, especially some of the way that people are arguing for liberty online is that that it doesn't seem to be very much an exercise for some people in better understanding these ideas that it it's it's becoming sort of like a way to like own other people mm -hmm. and um and and then that that ends up not being very effective. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair critique. Um, yeah, and speaking of the the exemplars that you were describing, you know, perfect example, Jeffrey Tucker, uh, during his uh, Brownstone Institute, uh, during the lockdowns, his his research of COVID and its origin story, everything else, it's like this guy was on the front lines every step of the way. Dave Smith, his analysis of the Russia Gate hysteria, like he was a year ahead of the news on everything, um, and I feel like. I hope that my track record in analyzing our economic system um, and the printing and everything else that's all screwed up in the world will will demonstrate that I have that same capacity for foresight in this particular arena. And and I think that that's, that's where our ideas, like you can't ignore us. When we say something two years in advance and then it happens two or three years down the road, you can't ignore us anymore. I think this is what made... Ron Paul such a compelling figure and had decades of influence and ultimately his influence has grown continuously even even past his you know prime uh, speaking years is that he was right he was right and he was early and and we have that ability because we understand this stuff better than anybody else because we're not propagandized we're actually reading for ourselves and thinking for ourselves and 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 going to diverse uh, you know intellectual movements and trying to figure out like take bits and pieces from here and there to decide what's best. And I hope that also, you know, your your work and my work on on covering ESG will will ultimately lay the groundwork for proving us, uh, you know, prescient when it comes to how dangerous that is. Uh, I think that those are those are the things that break through propaganda, you know, like like the media can try and ignore us all they want. But if I have a YouTube video that you can go back and you can watch two years ago, and then you can feel it today and go like, oh my God, like <laughs> this guy absolutely crushed it. That's, you can't ignore that anymore. Like the media way, it may suppress me. They may kick me off of YouTube, but um, there's just something about the truth, man. There's something about the truth and being early with it. And, and I think that that's, that's what our job is because we don't have political power. Our, our, our biggest um, ability to make headway is to just over time, consistently demonstrating that in the real world, not only would our ideas work, but also because our ideas aren't being utilized, we can tell you what's going to happen next. I think that's a very powerful tool.
Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree. And, and I think that um, some people like, I think it, it, it matters about like the, the mindset that you do it in because some people might do it just in order to look good, to look right, to, um, to, oh, yeah, no. to, to, to be seen as a prophet. And once, once you have sort of like the wrong end in mind, then it can, it, it can lead you to actually end up not being persuasive because people see through that. But completely when, agree. Yeah. It could be well, like cult-like at that point. Right, right. But when they can see like an earnest devotion to understanding and the truth, they recognize that and see that because th that's, that's what got me interested in, in ESG um, mm -hmm. was you. Me too. Be oh, really? Cool. Yeah, because I, I was I listened to your podcast, your your deep dives uh, in into ESG, and you know like you you had like stayed up all night, uh, <laughs> like going down the rabbit hole, like 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 learning about it, like um, figuring it out, piecing it together, and um, and first of all, sort of like your your passion for understanding it was contagious. That it made me, me want to understand it, plus the way you explained it like made sense to me, and and so that sent me down my own rabbit hole for oh that's trying awesome, to, trying to figure it out and trying to connect it with like Mises's idea of consumer sovereignty and 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 writing an, an article about it and and it was in the course of like following your leads in order to write this article to explain it to other people that um and to understand it myself that i came to understand it myself wow that's incredible man i, I had no idea um yeah i mean but that's it, it's funny because like i think that's ultimately why i do what i do but i don't really think about it in the in the like when i'm doing it like all i'm doing is seeking truth you know I, like i i would love to influence more influential people to have them kind of uh, you know, assist me in this process because I think what we need is we need real thought leaders that are, you know, all across the board in industry, in the media, in in politics, everywhere. Like we need we need people that that are deeply in the pursuit of truth above anything else. And and I think that's what makes you know the libertarian and the liberty movement more broadly very special is that while while my preference is liberty. The reason I believe in it is because I'm I'm constantly seeking the truth, and whenever I seek the truth, at the end of the, the day, I conclude that liberty would have been the right answer. Mm -hmm. And and I think that COVID and the, I mean my show is called Liberty Lockdown for God's sakes. Like the like COVID is like it was the true litmus test for like are you a deep critical thinker? Are you free thinking at all? Because if you are, I don't know how you come away concluding anything other than the government's involved, like you can, you can go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory and all sorts of stuff, which I certainly do. But the more, the more basic point is if you don't conclude that the government absolutely fucking botched it, like, I, like, I don't know, I don't know if you're reachable at this point. And, and I, I hope that, that because of that experience and, and as it becomes more stark year after year, uh, the economic calamity that's going to ensue because of it, the, the civil unrest, everything else that, that has unfolded as a product of it. I really hope that more and more people see the light and and we have what you were describing earlier as kind of a, a re-enlightenment period where people start to to value liberty once again, realizing that turning towards technocracy ultimately was a catastrophic mistake. I pray. 
I agree. Yeah. The Leonard Reed talked about like three components of uh, libertarian leadership, uh, understanding, conviction, and exposition. And, and that, that understanding like really feeds into conviction um, because the more you understand the principles, the, the, the more unwavering you are in them. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it also helps with exposition for like, the more you understand something, the better you are at explaining it. But, but the conviction itself has its own communicative power because, mm -hmm. because it, it demonstrates a depth of understanding that, right. um, that, and, and I think that that um, speaks volumes for those who did not waver um, when COVID struck because um, because from the understanding of the principles, the conviction was strong enough to 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 not waver. And that's inspiring. like that that um, and and that converts as many people as like a good explanation can. I, I think that's a great point and a beautiful way to say it. Um, yeah, and I think it also it it uh, it unmasked a lot of a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that, that would have claimed to have been liberty oriented or libertarian, moreover, that uh, ultimately proved themselves not to be. You know, when it came to being concerned about a pathogen, they were all for government mandates. And uh, and I think that you know, if you value liberty, you need to pay attention to people's track record and and say, where was this person? You know, in in the summer of 2020, like what were they were they pleading with you know for caution and acquiescence to government dictates or were they cautioning you about turning towards the government uh, to, to solve everything that ails society? And uh, unfortunately, I think what we learned was uh, during times of crisis, the vast majority of people, including in the libertarian sphere, are not as, uh, not as committed to the ideas of liberty as I would like them to be. I'll just put it like that. And, and I, you know, I think that if they're willing to acknowledge their mistakes, I, I have full open arm embrace ready for them. Um, but if you're not, you know, if you're just kind of moving on as if nothing happened, uh, those are the people that I'm concerned with. You know, like if you if you haven't deeply reflected, like if everybody hasn't deeply reflected on the past two years of our lives, like what are you doing? I mean, it, it has been I, my everything about my life. I've reassessed everything. Because I just assumed so many things that ended up being false. I assumed that the American people would never go along with it. I assumed that that ultimately our government would never do something like that to us, or at least not in the, the near term. I assumed that the global governments uh, wouldn't in lockstep do the same thing. Um, I assumed that we wouldn't have a, a proxy war with a nuclear power on their doorstep. You know, like there's a lot of assumptions that I'm having to, to, to reconsider. And I think that, well, it's it's important to have conviction about your ideas. It's also important to have an open mind and to, to as you said earlier, just constantly be learning and reassessing and reevaluating. Like we may have the best hypothesis. I think we do. I think libertarian and liberty-minded ideals are the best hypothesis, but it's vitally important that no matter how confident we are in them, we're constantly trying to prove out our hypothesis. And, mm -hmm. and if you can do that in the real world, all the better. Then you can actually bring people along with you for the ride. Um, anyways, I, I've kept you for an hour. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss or, or should we hop out of here?
Um, yeah, I, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, conviction as it applies to um, Ron Paul and, and the, the Ron Paul movement and like what, Let's do what it. the Mises caucus is, is trying to do. Um, Cause I think it's an interesting um, arena of conversation because the, I, I do, I do think that Ron Paul's uh, conviction is a big part of how he was able to launch a movement that he had such conviction in the principles of liberty that he was able to skewer sacred cows, like especially about like 9-11 and, and about the war on terror. And yeah. um, even, even when it was like really frowned upon to do so, and there was intense pressure to, to not do so. And, and, and the fact that he, you know, on, on that debate stage, um, explained blowback um, and, and explained um, the, the folly of an interventionist foreign policy um, to the face of the mayor of 9-11, uh, Rudy Giuliani, that I, I know that that was like the, the light bulb moment for like so many libertarians that that... Yeah. that 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 was sort of like the what launched launched the movement and and it, it was that conviction and and so and and i think that like you know people people who have conviction today who are following in ron paul's footsteps that like being firm on these questions even when they're like controversial um is super important because because the courage of, of one's convictions shines through and, and it can convert people. And so like, I, I really, you know, respect what, um, what Dave Smith is doing and, and the fact that he's so strong on these questions of conviction, on, on, on being unwavering on, on th these issues. And, and I do, th and, and I do think, I do agree that, um, that people who like um, promote uh, foreign wars in which, like you know, with mass civilian casualties, that 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 is horribly wrong, and that people who actually like play an active role in creating those policies are war criminals. Um, and so, and 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 I think I think that we need to be have the courage of our convictions to say that um and so i was wondering about your take on like some of the controversial tweets uh recently from from the new new hampshire uh party because i uh, I, I agree with them you know that that these acts are war crimes and and that we should call them for what they are but but for me like I think saying things like, um, you know, that that someone that that we like like celebrating um, someone's grief over the death of their war mongering father, um, that of of celebrating that, like I don't think that's necessary for um, displaying one's conviction 
And, and I think that it actually distracts from the conviction because like, I can't imagine like Ron Paul saying something like that. I, I can't, and, and I can't imagine him having the same effect if instead of speaking truth to, to, to Rudy Giuliani about um, the, the evils of, of these policies, if he, if he made it about Giuliani himself and how Giuliani like should be dead or in prison or, or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair critique. Um, you know, I see it both ways. I, I see it as, yes, you're going to push some people who are on the fence off of it and away from us. And that's not necessarily a positive. Um, but I also see it as creating a social cost for war propaganda. And uh, I did an entire episode on this uh, just a week ago <clears throat> where I explained Megan McCain's role in, in pushing both wars, but also war crimes uh, so much so and so recently so that she said that uh, she would like to see the January 6th protesters in Gitmo. Uh, where people were tortured. So I don't have any sympathy for this person. I don't have any sympathy for her father either. However, I do understand the critique and I do understand that, that, you know, a daughter grieving over her father's casket is a very harsh thing to mock in any form or fashion. The point of the tweet was celebrating John McCain's passing, which, you know, I don't really have a problem with, honestly, because I feel like when we don't have any, we don't have any problem if we celebrate you know, the passing of Hitler or Mao or Stalin or Pol Pot. It's like these these people have caused terrible human suffering. And and I would like the I would like to shift the Overton window from one of quiet acquiescence to their reigns of terror to one of fuck you, you ruined the world and we're not gonna honor you. And and I think that that's that's an important thing to try and you know bring about in the culture. Uh, one of of you know, no longer honoring these people. In fact, you know, spitting on them, not, not literally, but metaphorically. Um, so I don't know, I'm torn, man. I, just to be totally honest with you, like, I, I think that there's value in it, but there's also obviously, uh, you know, negative cost to it too. Yeah. Like th that's an interesting um, comparison because, um, you know, with, with these like historical warmongers, um, like it's it's an interesting question about like whether um, it helps to not only want their victims to be provided justice, but um, but to also um, sort of like shame. Yeah, to. Yeah, to, well, well, to to shame them, and, and there's different types of shaming too. There, there's like, there's the shaming of you did something evil that you committed mass murder, and that in and of itself is shaming. But there's also the the shaming of like, of like, uh, like I I hope you burn in hell. Like I I hope you die. I hope you suffer, and. And I wonder if if that kind of that kind of shaming kind of like directs redirects people's attention away from justice and towards like the the kind of gratuitous enjoyment of the suffering right. of of that 
person um, because yeah. for for me it's less it's less for their their benefit and more for like the sake of our benefit and and our focus because I'm worried that in the same way that like that fixating on like the evil of Hitler and the evil of Stalin that that can bring people towards like warmongering itself because because like when the objective That's true is just like you know make them suffer then um then then it can lead you to to those types of of things whereas whereas yeah so what, what do you think of that no that's a, it's a great point and and you know ultimately i'm not interested in in war at all and i don't want to go to war with the neocons even though they probably deserve it as much as any group in this country um so I, you know, I take I take all of your your comments uh, sincerely, and and uh, I think that they're they're well founded. Um, I just think that you know we've we've tried the the calm, rational expositions on why these are war crimes, and and it hasn't gotten people's attention. I think the problem is is that the media ignores us so much that it's kind of forcing some of us into a path of desperation where we're like we're going to try some radical things. We're going to try to get attention however we can. And, you know, there are going to be pluses and minuses to that path. Um, I think it's unavoidable, though. I think that ultimately you have a sense of desperation because there is a sense of desperation amongst our movement that, like, our ideas are not being implemented in, a, in any serious fashion or any broad-based fashion. And in fact, the exact inverse of our principles are being enacted very, very rapidly. So um, I don't know. I, I think that it's kind of a, a trial and error thing. You know, you have the more moderate LP accounts that are that are taking their path and they're trying to, you know, make their way in the world. And you have accounts like LPNH that are going hard in the paint and trying to get attention, even if it causes outrage. Um, but they've also had now, you know, multiple reporters reach out that are writing articles on them. Uh, there's some other big podcasts that are talking about having some of the guys that work on that account on their shows. I, I can't say any more than that at this point. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think I think time will tell as to whether or not it's a net positive. But I, I completely, you know, grant you the fact that there is a negative that comes with it. Um, so we'll see. I hope I hope I explained it in a way that that makes it seem as if this is a more it's it's more of a rational thought process that's going into this than it probably appears on on the surface level. Like if you just see that, you're like, oh, these guys are just shit posting nutcases. Um, these are some of the best libertarians we have, and I, I know that that may a lot of people probably won't believe me when I say that, but these are people that care deeply, that are intelligent, that are well read, that understand exactly what they're doing, and they're they're basically using like Solalinsky's rules rules for radicals, but on, on our side of the fence this time. And, and what we've witnessed is that the, you know, the, uh, the, the Marxist game of shaming people into acquiescence has been very powerful. And I think that they're trying in, in uh, their own roundabout way to kind of use that same <clears throat> uh, shame game to try and create a social cost for warmongering. And I think that it's important that if we're going to take that path, you can't just include the politicians that advocate and and ultimately, you know, put their names on these bills that that send our our soldiers off to commit atrocities. It's important that the propagandists themselves feel that pressure. Um, so I don't know. Time will tell. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just worry that um, 
that desperation can be counterproductive and that haste can make waste. Um, sure. Especially because like Leonard Reed talks about how like the higher the the ends, the higher the the means that that work for that, and that mm -hmm. that like uh, the what works for attaining low ends, like like socialism, won't work for like actually opening interesting minds to 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 liberty, and and I think that there's also there's a difference between righteous anger and hate, and and I think that. Um, I think that it's not a dichotomy between like, well, either you have to like go all in and, and denounce them in any, any way, like the harshest way that you can, or like, it's like a, a dry pronouncement of, of like, whether something is, is wrong or not. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily true because I think that, I, I think that Ron Paul's, um, you know, calling war crimes for for what they are and 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 pointing out the 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 evil of what we were doing that 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 was shocking enough and that that did garner a lot of attention but and and it inspired a lot of people because people it it, it, it the 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 attention around it was around like the the justice of the actions, whereas that I, that I worry that like messaging that focuses on vilifying certain actors, that that'll get a lot of attention, but that attention will be focused on the actors itself, and right. then it becomes just like an a, a, an ver like an overthrow the enemy type thing instead right. of overthrowing a bad ideas type thing. I, I love it. I love it. That uh, very eloquently stated. And I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I hope that, you know, my, my justification of their messaging style um, doesn't make you think that I disagree. Like I, I actually do agree with you, but, um, I, and I think it's evidenced with my own messaging style. Like I don't, I don't actually go the same route. I just think that there is some merit in a decentralized trying these different things out. And, you know, for, for example, you know, Ron Paul on stage, on a debate stage in the RNC, uh, that's a much different setting. And I think that that's, that also plays into this here. You know, like if Dave Smith were to run and he were to get on the debate stage by some miracle, um, I don't think he would be delivering rants against John McCain specifically. You know, it would be a much more broad, principled uh, exposition as to, as to why we oppose the, the militarism that we've seen in our lifetimes. So I think that it's there's a time and place argument, um, but I think I think uh, you've you've added a lot to this this conversation that that was delivered in a in a rational way and not a you know spiteful way that we saw from a lot of their detractors online over the past couple of weeks. So I hope when they listen they'll they'll take it to heart. Anyways, I I got to get out of here because I've uh, I've got I'm on the combo couch with Dave Smith and Jimmy Dore in about 30 minutes and I got to prepare a little bit. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me, Dan. If anybody wants to follow him, please go to at Dan Sanchez V on Twitter and FEE online. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people? I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity and for this conversation that I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, man. It was great. Well, I'm sure we'll do it again. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, your support means the world to me. If you want to show some love, either go to libertylockdown.locals.com and sign up to become a supporting member. I'm going to be doing an AMA right after the Alex Jones episode so that you guys can come in on stream with me, ask some questions. It'll be a ton of fun. 
libertylockdown.locals.com. Or if you ain't got no money, that's cool. I get it. I've been there. Hit a like, hit a subscribe, share it around, leave a comment, do all the free things that you can do to help get more eyeballs and interaction with this type of uh, content. Because if you're listening, it probably means you think it's valuable. Thank you, guys. I will see you in a couple days with the legend, Alex Jones. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?